The Athletic. I'm Michelle Owen and this is the Athletic Wins Football Podcast World Cup Edition. Today we'll be looking back on day 18 of the FIFA Women's World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. Sweden and the USA battled out a 0-0 draw before the game went to penalties and in dramatic fashion Sweden squeezed through. And the Netherlands continued their quietly impressive World Cup by beating African champion South Africa in today's early game. With me today from Australia is The Athletic's Chloe Morgan. Hey Chloe. Hiya. We'll also be hearing from reporters on the ground down under as we reach the halfway point in the round of 16. First up, Sweden for the USA. And it all hangs in the air and on the verdict of Stephanie Frappard, did it cross the line? A stadium holds its breath. It's confirmed! Lena Hurting's effort had crept over the line by millimetres. The United States of America are out of the tournament. Wow, Chloe, the US have never gone out in this point in a World Cup. Uh, let's be honest, wasn't an exciting game. Cagey first half from both sides. The US took the initiative slightly more. I felt like Lindsay Horan really was the primary threat for the US before we get into the drama of the penalty shootout. Let's talk about the game. She she forced a great save early in the second half, didn't she? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the USA forced a lot of great saves uh, for Musevic. who had the absolute competition of her life. Um, but yeah, Horan, uh, co-captain with Alex Morgan, I think both of them put in an absolute shift, leading by example. I think they had the best clear chances. Uh, Alex Morgan with a header that was saved by Musevic. Horan as well had a header that just about skimmed the crossbar. And I think... That just kind of summed up the USA's night. I think they had chance after chance. They had shots on target. They, you know, far superseded anything that, uh, you know, Sweden were given. They looked completely flat, completely unable to kind of um, get round or, or game manage what, what was happening with the US and the pressure they were applying and wave after wave of attack. I mean, they barely had any of the possession. But yeah, I think Haran, I, I think she had an absolutely outstanding game. And I think it was, you know, the camera panned across when that penalty was declared in and um, yeah she was the first one you know absolute tears at what had happened and I could understand that because she had just put in the biggest shift to keep the team in it so um, yeah but she was great like credit to her. Yeah the US actually had 58% of the ball they had 22 shots 11 on target I mean it was incredible drama in the penalty shootout because not a lot went on in the game Chloe if we're being honest I think if we just skipped to the penalty shootout we wouldn't have lost out on too much uh, through that game but this incredible drama I mean US players like Megan Rapino failing to take advantage she missed the target no one would have seen that coming she's only human though I think um I mean the context to the penalty shootout was the fact that Musevic had had the absolute game of her life. I mean the whole reason that Sweden had made it to extra time and then also into the penalty shootout was the fact that Musevic had pulled off eight magnificent saves. I mean if it wasn't for her they would be looking at one of the biggest losses in the tournament because Sweden just looked so deflated, so flat, just not at the races. 
So, um, you know, getting them to that stage after 120 minutes was was no mean feat. And I think it was a single handed performance from her. And I think that's why the USA were probably a little bit nervous about going into this penalty shootout because they had seen the shift that Musevic had been putting in. And as a goalkeeper, when you're making save after save like that, I mean, the Haran shot on the edge of the box was recorded at 92 kilometres an hour. And the, <laughs> and tipping that past the post is no mean feat. And I definitely think that's put all on the radar in terms of her opportunities at Chelsea, where she's been the second uh, the second choice keeper for Emma Hayes, can you believe? So, mm. um, yeah, I think, yeah, but I think she would have been absolutely flying going into that competition, into the into the penalty shootout. And although she didn't really have to do much, obviously with Rapino missing the penalty, O'Hara hitting the post, um, not great. Those are the two kind of, you know, firm favourites who you would have expected to, you know, put the ball in the back of the net. And I think that again was just sort of indicative of, of where the game was really going. I think, you know, Sweden were the first to miss their penalty. And I think by that point, everyone thought, you know what, it would be well-deserved for the USA to, to pick up the points and go through to the next next stage because they had had the more dominant performance. But this is just the nature of penalty shootouts. Once you get there, it's 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 fair game. It's absolutely fair game. And it was um, it was a penalty shootout that kept on giving. I mean, you had those misses from absolute U- USA icons and then you had... Um, Naya stepping up to take a penalty, the sixth penalty herself, which she didn't even need to do. <laughs> she didn't need to do it. Like, what she doing? It was just absolutely <laughs> bizarre. But then, I mean, you're a keeper. What 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 is wrong with you? I mean, why are you doing this? I mean, everyone calls <laughs> keepers mad, but I I think um, you know that was a real moment of like, what the hell is going on? You already had. There's five other players there who could have taken the penalty before your keeper, and unless Naya's been you know, secretly practising penalty kicks. I, and I don't know why she would do. I think there's more, you know, important priorities to be dealing with as goalkeeper. I just couldn't understand it. But then also when O'Hara stepped up to take that, um, the, the seventh penalty, which she eventually hit the post on, I could kind of understand because O'Hara leading up to that penalty did not look like she wanted to be there, did not look as if she was prepared for this moment. And you could almost tell before she kicked it that that was not going in because she just didn't want to. So maybe that's what Naya was doing, was trying to take the pressure off of a, of a colleague. So... Yeah, that's the only thing I can think of because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. The thing is, she was all set up to be the hero. You know, Lena Hurtig steps up, not the most convincing penalty, but it looked like a great save. She thinks she saved it. And then I don't know why the referee's watch didn't buzz to say if the ball was over the line or not. One can only imagine it's because it was so, so, so tight. I mean, you can barely see the gap. So then we wait. I mean, have you ever seen anything like this? We wait to see if the US have been knocked out and if Sweden are going through. The drama after what was... Okay, the US had their chances on goal, but what was a pretty dull game, if we're being honest? The drama at the end of it, it's just this World Cup, Chloe. I mean, have have you seen anything like this before? No. This game just summarised how this World Cup is going in terms of cup sets and, you know, Titans being taken down. You know, we've already had Brazil, we've had Canada being taken out, Germany's gone, the USA have gone, and everyone's like, how has this happened? How is this going on? And this game, where you've got a super keeper having the absolute game of her life, despite her squad doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> you've got Nea taking a penalty. You've got Rapino and O'Hara, like the USA icons, missing their own penalties. You've then got a VAR call. You have to, it's not a goal, it is a goal. And that's how the USA got knocked out. It was just the most bizarre game. And the penalty shootout just kept on giving. So, yeah, I think that just sums up the kind of carnage that's happening in this World Cup. It's the most exciting World Cup we've seen, the most competitive and the most kind of you just don't know what's going to happen next. And that just keeps you wanting to watch it and it keeps fans engaged. So more of this going into further <laughs> international tournaments. This is just my heart. Every single game, my heart. So good. 
So good. I mean, it's, it's tough, though, being on this US team because you're under a lot of pressure for something you achieved or the team achieved four years ago by basically being a different team. It's not like you're defending something that's just happened. And by being a US women's national team player, it just comes with a huge amount of responsibility. I just wonder, does it feel like the rest of the world has now caught up with the US? And what went wrong for them? I think that I think it started with the mentality that they went into this competition. They were the favourites to win, having obviously won the World Cup two years, uh, the two years in a row, so in 2015 and 2019. And everyone was saying, you know, is this going to be the year they get the three P? Um, the way they announced the squad was absolutely huge. You've got Taylor Swift, you've got the president of the United the States president, making I these mean... big videos. <laughs> <laughs> you've got the, one of the most important men on the planet announcing your, um, you know, you're going to the World Cup. And I think, and you've got these fantastic Nike suits that have been designed by the, you know, one of the most famous designers in the world. You've got these like elite glasses and foot. You look incredible. The, everyone's expecting you to dominate the world stage. Everyone's expecting everything from you. Um and I think the pressure is then on. And I think to a certain degree, they need to reflect back on whether they put pressure on themselves in the way that they the lead up to the tournament. Um, and I think, um, well, they're, they're very much a squad also in, in a sense of transition. They've got a lot of young players coming in, you know, Sophia Smith, um, you know, and also a lot of like the old favourites as well. You've still got Rapino there. You've still got Alex Morgan, Haran, um, Julia. So I think the squad is going, it's, it's a different time than it was four years ago. It definitely is a different time than it was eight years ago when the landscape of women's football was completely different. So, and I think we've seen the gap completely, you know, almost be annihilated in some respects. I mean, you look now that we've got five teams who are, you know, quite, you know, highly ranked in FIFA in terms of, you know, they're not being in the top 20 now entering the final round of 16. I mean, you know, teams like South Africa, like Nigeria, like Morocco, um, you know, that are knocking these Tysons out of the competition. I mean, the the, the level, the playing field is completely different now. So, yeah, I think um, to a certain degree it isn't expected, but also everyone just thought that the USA were still going to make it to the finals because they're just the USA. But that era is over. So, yeah. Historically, the winner of USA would become one of the favourites to win, but... I'm not convinced from what you've said. Does Sweden look like a winner this year? No. <laughs> In a word. <laughs> I guess they're playing Japan, right? I mean, when we talk about Japan, I think Japan have been the kind of silent assassins. Like they've been very low key, very kind of humble, going about their business, and they've absolutely dominated the group stages. They're the highest scoring uh, team so far. They've not conceded a single goal yet. They've got the uh, the current what favourite for the Golden Boot, Miyazawa, on five goals currently. I think she's only just um, above Jill Ward, who's now on four. Um, and I think they just look so dominant. They just, you know, they've, they've turned over team after team, you know, getting four, five goals e- each time. Um, and I think how flat we saw Sweden be, how they couldn't problem solve, how they you know lacked any kind of intensity. I think there was a stat, I mean, halfway through the game in the USA-Sweden game, that was the USA were recovering the ball in six seconds and Sweden recovering it in 27 seconds. And that just tells me about the intensity of the Sweden squad. I mean, they're not fighting for their, you know, their place in this competition up until you get to the penalty shootouts and all of a sudden they have, an, have a worldy of a... <laughs> so maybe that's going to be their plan. They just sort of do just a, waiting. you know, a bank of, <laughs> uh, 11. They just, like, just, yeah, just park the bus for 90 minutes or 120 minutes and wait for the, wait for the penalty shootouts where they expect everything to fall on Musevich, which, you know, that's, it's one of the more different strategies, but it, it's clearly worked. So, um, so yeah, but no, I do, I do bank on, on Japan. Um, yeah, getting Sweden out in, in the full 90 minutes because they've just been, 
ferocious, um, efficient, and um, and defensively their record is outstanding. So um, yeah, big one to beat in the quarterfinals. Absolutely, Sweden go through, and the USA are out of the Women's World Cup 2023. Let's get a reaction from our North American colleagues Tamara Griffin and Steph Young, who have been talking to the shell shocked US team. Okay, Steph, what's going through your mind right now? It's still a little numb. I think I got a little emotional. It was weird. Megan Rapinoe got emotional. Lindsay Horan choked up in the mix zone. I was mostly fine. You kind of expect the players. Then Vlatko Andonovsky gets up there. And this is a... I've never seen this man express, like, more than, like, a mild emotion, whether it was irritation or happiness or whatever. He's, like, pretty controlled. And you could see him visibly getting choked up, having to swallow back his feelings, talking about the tournament. And for some reason, that, seeing him that emotional, I was like, oh. Mm. I thought it was telling, too, that it was a question about the younger players in particular Mm. that seemed to kind of crack him open. Mm. Um, And he got lucky, I think, that the next question after that was about Pino, where it seemed like he was able to kind of gather himself. Mm -hmm. But there does seem to be something specifically about the journey that the younger players, for whom this was their first World Cup, had Mm -hmm. that that kind of shifted him out of his usual uh, even-keeled persona. I don't think that you can doubt that he cares about these players. He had a really telling answer. He kept getting asked, like, what's next for you? What's next for you? And that's a hard question even at, you know, the best of times. But just after you were eliminated, he actually had a really interesting answer where he was like, someone just pointed out that the players were really hurt going through the mix zone. It's selfish to think about me when we have these kids, like 20-year-olds, so like Trudy Rodman, um, you know, Sophia Smith, who was inconsolable after the game, by the way, as one would be having missed a penalty. He was like, it's selfish to think about me at this time. It's about the players. And he pointed out, we've been together for like four years. He's gotten to know them. They're, you know, they're, they're people to each other. Yeah, and there's something really humbling, I think, about being able to start someone's journey that early on. I mean, clearly these players have been on journeys, but to start this chapter in their careers. He mentioned seeing players earn their first caps, taking players to the World Cup for the first time, experiencing that moment with them, knowing what lies ahead and knowing that this moment probably feels earth shattering. So the holders are out, with Sweden progressing to face Japan in the quarterfinals. Spain there already, and they play the winner of today's early kickoff between the Netherlands and South Africa. And we'll discuss that in just a sec. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. It was the Netherlands 2, South Africa nil, as the African champions' excellent run in the competition came to an end. The Athletics' Harriet Drudge was at Sydney's Alliance Stadium and sent us this report just after the final whistle. Hi Michelle, just back from Sydney Football Stadium. For the last time now, as all matches in Sydney moved to Stadium Australia. 
On paper, it might look like this last 16 tie was comfortable for the Netherlands, with goals in either half from Jill Rood and Lineth Berenstein. But really, the story centred around the two goalkeepers, with Player of the Match awarded to the Netherlands number one, Daphne van Domselaar. The 23-year-old featured in the radar, our Women's World Cup scouting guide, kept her third clean sheet in four appearances, making a number of impressive saves, most notably keeping South Africa captain Thembi Keplana at bay and pushing a second-half Linda Matalo strike out for a corner. Rod's opener came in the ninth minute, heading in what she described as one of the easiest goals she scored from about a yard out. Despite being a goal down and losing two players to injury before half-time, Banyana Banyana weren't disheartened, nor did they change their approach. They fought for every ball, looked to release Katlana at every opportunity. She stung the palms of Van Domselaar, but Aston Villa's new keeper was equal to it, not once, but twice. The Netherlands' second came on the 68th minute, and there was more than an element of luck and misfortune to it. Kaylin Swart, who had otherwise been solid for South Africa, was perhaps already thinking about what she was going to do next, as Linda Berenstein's shot approached her. That lapse in concentration saw the ball slip through her hands and into the net to all but extinguish her side's hopes of progressing. It was far from a vintage performance by the Netherlands. They got the job done, though, albeit with Danielle van der Donk picking up her second yellow card of the tournament. That means she'll miss the quarterfinal against Spain. She'll be a big miss but what a blockbuster match we have to look forward to on Friday. Um, what did you make of this game then, uh, Chloe? I think the Netherlands were firm favourites and they've been pretty solid in the tournament up till now and there seems to be an air of confidence certainly after this win, doesn't there? Um, no, I think this is a great game, but I don't think it was particularly unexpected. Um, obviously, we just discussed the USA result and that was the big shocker of the, of the day, but... I think, you know, going into this game with the Netherlands, South Africa were quite confident. They weren't expecting to reach the uh, the round of 16 in any event. And I think it was quite lovely to hear from uh, Desiree Ellis, the, uh, the South African coach. She gave such an impassioned speech after she found out they got through to the final 16. And she basically said that, that you know, the, there's, there's no pressure on them to get any further. They've already achieved so much. They already seem really positive. So in a sense, they, they felt that anything could happen in this tournament. And we've seen, you know, some real big upsets happen already. So... Um, yeah, it was um, probably slightly disappointing for them. I think they probably thought that this this year could have been the, the magic year, given everything that's happened. But yeah, it was a fairly bog standard result, really. As a conference sounding Dutch manager, Andreas Jonker said they have the conviction they can beat anybody while the US are out now. Sweden have gone through. Uh, their side of the draw, would you agree with that? And if they were to get to the final, do you think this could be their year after... Losing out in the last World Cup in the final? Um, I think they definitely look like a very uh, organised team. I think, you know, Jill Ward has had an absolutely outstanding tournament. Um, she obviously got the goal in the ninth minute in the, uh, in the South Africa game. But I don't think there was particularly that much of a challenge for them in the South Africa game. I don't think they were particularly tested in the way that, you know, some of the bigger nations will test them. I think obviously Jill Ward has had an outstanding tournament. She scored in the ninth minute in the South Africa game. Uh, we saw her score against the USA as well. So I think she's going to be a key player for them. I mean, one player they're obviously going to be missing is Danielle Vanderdon. Could be one of the hotheads in the um, in the tournament. I mean, um, her previous coach uh, Joe Montemoro was sort of talking in um, the uh, the press conferences and saying, you know, he did have a struggle with her at Arsenal sometimes, kind of keep her trying to keep her sort of you know calm and consistent. So yeah, that's going to be a big loss for them going into the Spain game. And that is definitely going to be harder competition for them. So I think that will be the real the real test and match up. But we have seen them produce, you know, a really good result out of the US. So, you know, and the USA have just come out. So technically speaking, I mean, the Netherlands are on track for a, a pretty good tournament. We haven't discussed Netherlands as much as other teams, really, Chloe. So 
that matchup with Spain, Spain pass, 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 pass. Is, we know that's what's going to happen. But what kind of team are the Netherlands in comparison? I think it's going to be quite a, uh, an evenly matched battle. I think, um, you know, Spain and the Netherlands are both very possession-based teams. I mean, in the Netherlands-South um, Africa game, I mean, the first 20 minutes, they had 74% of the possession and they looked so comfortable in that. I don't know how they're going to fare being out of possession because obviously Spain are sort of the the sort of the, the gods in, in terms of that sense, you know, to keeping the football, you know, keeping, you know, playing the triangles, keeping, you know, tiki-taka football, keeping it very fast paced, very direct. Um so yeah, I think it's going to be a really good matchup to see sort of what how they both, you know, problem solve on the pitch to deal with two very possession based teams. Yeah. It's it's funny to know what to expect from Spain because they lose 4-0 to Japan and they beat the Swiss 5-1. Um could the Netherlands do a Japan on Spain and just let them have the ball and sit back and, and do what Japan did? Or is that a Japan speciality because they're so good at executing it? Spain have had a really kind of inconsistent tournament. I think like you just mentioned there, I mean, they're, they've had their biggest loss of the World Cup and also their biggest victory at a World Cup in the group stages. And then to go on and sort of win the game against Switzerland so, uh, you know, dominantly, I mean, it was 5-1, but I think we saw a Swiss side who really sat deep um, and just sort of allowed Spain to have that possession again. Uh, I mean, it wasn't the kind of same Spain that we saw when they looked so shaky against Japan. They looked back on form. They looked back firing all cylinders. Um, it was a little bit of a different performance. Obviously, we had um, Katakol stepping in, um, in in goal, uh, which is a little bit unusual. And they had made five changes uh, in the game since Japan. But yeah, I think um, Spain seems to be sort of finding their feet, but they are inconsistent. So I just don't know what to expect going into the quarterfinal. You never know what to expect in this tournament. I could be saying one thing and look like a complete idiot the next day. So yeah, it's always scary putting an opinion out there at the moment. Yeah, I think we called Spain chaotic, which is a good word for it. Good word for the tournament, really. Um, but that is sadly the end of the road for South Africa. So in the Netherlands and Sweden join Spain and Japan in the quarterfinals of the 2023 World Cup. Still to play in the round of 16, though, England face Nigeria and hosts Australia take on Denmark. We'll look at Monday's games after the break. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast. So tomorrow it's England. The Lionesses take on Nigeria at 8.30 in the morning at UK time. Uh, to recap how the Lionesses have done up to this point, here's the Athletic Charlotte Harper. England secured their place in the knockout stages, topping Group D with three wins out of three. Along the way, they lost key deep-lying midfielder Kira Walsh, but Serena Wiegmann proved yet again why she's the FIFA best women's coach by switching things up against China and revealing a brand new formation that instantly clicked and could be the Lionesses' new blueprint. The standout player, no question, has been Lauren James with three goals and three assists so far. She is the one to watch and the one that England will be hoping can take them all the way. It will be a collective effort though, and while they've only conceded one goal, a controversial penalty, England have proven they are vulnerable on the counter.
Yeah, what about England's opponents, Nigeria? Here's the athletics recap brought to you by producer Abby. What a story we have in Nigeria. A team that came into this tournament lacking significant funding and the chance for head coach Randy Waldron to have a final look at the players available to him. No matter, they've risen against the odds and with two goalless draws and an outstanding victory over Australia, the Super Falcons have supersawed their way to the knockout stages. They'll be sweating over the availability of key striker Asiat Oshuala, who isn't fully fit, but Osinache Ohale has stepped up to the plate in her absence. Matches don't come much tougher than the reigning European champions England, but Nigeria have already pulled off one of the shocks of the tournament. No reason why they can't do it again. So who wins in a fight between a lioness and a super falcon? We're about to find out. As Abby mentioned, Barcelona star Asasat Ashala has been a fitness doubt for this game, but Nigeria coach Randy Waldrum, speaking ahead of tomorrow's match in his matchday minus one press conference, said she's fit and ready to go. She's ready to perform whatever we need to ask of her. She's the key, a special striker with strength and speed. She's a big piece of what we do, and it's important to have her fit and healthy. So clearly a massive threat, but who else, Chloe, should England be wary of? I think and Doty really. I think she's had a great tournament in goal. Um, obviously, I think you know England in their last game against China managed to dust off the cobwebs in terms of you know trying to trying to well in terms of getting those goals. Really, I mean we were suffering from a bit of goal drought in open play, but you know Lauren James kicking off the um, the goal sheet just seems to be sort of a bit of a it seems to inspire a lot of confidence. I think and walking away with such a definitive win, I think was massive for England. But had that not taken place, I'd be slightly concerned at the at the likes of having you know Andosi in goal and having a, an England who weren't particularly on fire in form. But she's been outstanding for them uh, in terms of their defensive record. But I think Ashwala is going to be the big one to watch because she does cause so much threat. She's so direct. She's so passionate. She's so you know willing to take take the ball up there to relieve the pressure from the back line. She's so she tracks back. She does everything. So. I think the the main key, I think, for Serena is trying to basically mark her out of the game and do whatever they can to break up the play to her. To I think Nigeria are going to want to find her any opportunity. So I think if they kind of you know get rid of the deliveries to Ashwala, I think that could cut out a significant level of um, of threat for them there. For England, the big news is that Kira Walsh is back in training. Um, speaking to the media in the days before the game, Lucy Bronze suggested that even with Walsh back, the England back three formation could be here to stay. I mean, what do you think of that, Chloe? Because it does allow Daly and Bronze to push up much, much higher. I personally really loved seeing Millie Bright step out with the ball. I thought she looked a lot more comfortable. But if they're going to play with a back three, then does Kira Walsh play as one of two pivots? How would you see it? I think it's quite hard to tell, actually, whether Kira Walsh is still going to be, even though she might be available for the game tomorrow. I don't know whether she'll actually start the game. Um, I mean, we just had the uh, the press conference with Serena um, earlier on this afternoon and, you know, she was saying that while she is available to play, obviously Zellum slept in for her at the last game. And, you know, Serena, Serena mentioned, you know, how great a game that, that Zellum had had. And she said, you know, we do have options in this position now. So I don't think they're going to rush Kira Walsh coming back. And I also don't think a team like Barcelona, um, as you know, one of the most expensive strikers is going to be probably talking to the England camp and saying, OK, be careful about the rehab here. We don't want one of our most expensive players to be coming out <laughs> into the season, still suffering from a niggle. So, I think they want to manage that. They want to be safe. You know, the last thing you want for anything to happen is to, you know, a player to come back too early and then you suffer an injury that's more severe, more severe, more serious than, than the initial one. So I would be surprised if she started, but I did like Zellum stepping into that role. I thought, you know, she has such great captaincy experience with Manchester United. They always had a great season, you know, finished second in the WSL, getting Champions League football and, and getting into the FA Cup final as well. And I think, 
she sort of brought that experience, that calm headedness. I think everything she did was bang on. Her pass completion rate was fantastic. And I think she brought some kind of calmness, I think, in a defensive way. But I think Serena had the tactics for the China game bang on in, in terms of having that kind of three at the back. But then, like you said, also having, you know, attacking wings. I mean, it's such a weird situation that you've got some of your defensive line being the main sources of your attack. I mean, like you said there, I mean, Bright stepping up, you know, creating some of the chances. She got a pre-assist herself, Bronze stepping up, Rachel Daly delivering some of the crosses into the box. And I think, you know, having the two up front as well with, um, with Russo and Hemp was, was absolutely fantastic. They both seem to kind of feed off each other's confidence there. So it'll be interesting to see what Serena does, but she has also found that winning formula in the China game. So She's got her options there. And I think what's quite nice to see is that she does have that option to go three or four and to change the system and to know that the players feel comfortable and have also had game experience in that system. So, yeah, the world's a oyster, really. I think watching from here, that press conference felt a little bit cagey in some ways. I mean, it's quite clear that Serena Wiegmann doesn't want the opponent to know what her plan is, and rightly so. That's her prerogative. But what's the atmosphere been like media-wise you know, sort of going to see England and, and being at that match day management presses and perhaps doing some more of the interviews is you've had more of an insight than than we have. Is is there a wariness? Yeah, I think um we were actually talking about this, like some of the press pack, and we were saying, you know, the it almost feels like now, sort of a couple of weeks into the tournament, the players, and not just England players, are getting sort of more um media savvy. So I think obviously in the lead up to the tournament, there were so many players speaking up against issues about their federations, resources. You know, we saw the England players talking about their bonuses with the FA and the disputes they were having. We saw Mary Earp speaking about um, the fact that you know Nike weren't selling her goalkeeper kit. So I think there's been so much advocacy um, from the players in the lead up. And I think now the tournament started, there seems to be a bit more of a crackdown, I think probably from the camp themselves saying, OK, well, now the football is the biggest priority. We understand, obviously, these issues are important, but please be careful of what you're saying even more so, because every time you say something that could have an impact, it obviously affects the team, it affects the dynamics. You've got to deal with that. It, it applies more pressure onto the squad themselves. So, you know, and I think Serena is definitely one of those managers who, while she does like to, you know, create freedom and a sense of, you know, you know, in spending family time, all the players speak so highly about her wanting the players to, um, you know, have this time with their families and have this downtime. But she is a bit of a stickler, I think, for them going on social media and not being involved in commercial opportunities so that the main focus is just, you know, what happens on the pitch. So, and I, you know, you, you, you've got to manage that. So, um, yeah, we've definitely seen a bit of a kind of um, a clampdown, I think, on players saying things that are too um, out there or, or controversial, um, which you can understand to a certain extent. But it, but we do wish they give us a little bit more sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like it might have been a little bit hard going at times, let's say that. Um, initially, we thought England started this walk up a bit slowly. But considering the shocks of other established nations, you know, still reeling from the US going out at this stage for the first time ever. Uh, but nine points from the group stages for England. Performance is improving game by game. Perhaps we should think again. Perhaps this is the way to ease into a tournament. It's not that dissimilar to the Euros, is it, Chloe? Yeah, well, I think yeah, we had a bit of a, not a, not a dodgy start, but a sort of a, a less confident start um, in the Euros last year. We the only won the first game 1-0 and I think you know, obviously we saw the same thing happen at uh, the World Cup uh, a couple of weeks back but I think it was um, Lucy Bronze who was basically saying you know you don't want to start the tournament at your absolute strongest with all all guns blazing you need to start the tournament in a kind of like a soft ramp in a way in the terms of you know you get adjusted to you know life out here this is a completely different tournament to the Euros you've got to deal with you know being really far away from your family a lot of these players are you know ridiculously young uh, we've got players out here who are 16 I mean Casey Fair has you know only just finished their GCSEs um, and also acclimatising, getting used to the climate out here, getting used to the jet lag, the time difference is big. And also all these teams are flying every single game, you know, from different cities or from different countries. So 
I think there's a lot of things that they've had to contend with. So I think, you know, you can't always expect they're going to be able to actually physically go into the competition with that level of, you know, being at 100%. But I think that's the most promising thing about England is that we have seen improvements game on game. So, and that China game, I think that was a, a sort of real turning point. And that was the moment that I think everyone thought, oh, we did have some concerns before, but actually, oh no, this looks like the team that we've seen win uh, European trophies. So, um, yeah, I think, um, yeah, there's a lot more confidence going to the Nigeria game now. And Chloe, Serena Vigman's the only female coach left at this World Cup now. Did you talk to her about that? Yeah, she was. Um, well, first up, it was the Nigeria uh, match day minus one press conference. And uh, Randy Waldron was actually asked about it first in the day. And he was saying, you know, how fantastic it is an achievement for Serena. He was someone, uh, she was someone that he really, really admired. He obviously feared the competition. He was sort of confident of his side, but also respected the fact that Serena had done so much, not just in terms of her playing career, but her managerial career. And obviously now going into... Uh, the World Cup, we were starting to look like one of the the strong favourites. So, um, yeah, he did sort of touch on the fact that, you know, it, it is one of those um, careers where, you know, representation isn't isn't great. Um, we are still missing a lot of their female representation in the field. And then I think Serena was asked about it in the press conference earlier today as well. And, and she was saying how it felt amazing that that was the case, but also, you know, the pathways through to um, to the tournament and getting to this kind of level of, of, of being head coach was quite a difficult route, but that it wasn't something that she focused on too much. But, you know, to everyone else, it felt like a really big achievement and that she was, you know, girl bossing it at the World Cup stage, being the last woman standing. So, um, yeah, I think everyone else was super impressed. But Serena, ever the cool, calm head, just um, wasn't something that had really registered with her at all. I think her mind is fully focused on on the game in hand tomorrow. I love her demeanour. I love how chilled out she is. <laughs> She's just so cool, calm and collected. You can't get anything more from her. It's it's tough sometimes. Although she did say, actually, that um, when asked about what England would do at the um, if they, if they, to celebrate the, the Nigeria win, if they got the win, she said, oh, actually, well, I'm, I'm actually the best dancer in the team, which everyone found hilarious. <laughs> you never really get those moments that. from Serena. So it was, um, yeah, Alex Greenwood looked at her in disbelief, but Serena looked very confident about that fact. So, um, so yeah, that was great to see. So co-hosts Australia take on Denmark tomorrow at 11.30. To refresh your memories on how the Matildas waltzed into the last 16, it's producer Steve. For Australia, this World Cup has been a roller coaster. The day before their first match, news broke that star striker Sam Kerr was unavailable following a thigh injury. Then they rocked further with a dramatic loss to Nigeria meaning they had to beat Olympic champions Canada to progress to the knockouts. But when the pressure was on, Caitlin Ford, Mary Fowler and co stepped up and cemented why they were our dark horses, or light ponies, for this tournament. They have a tricky match up against Denmark to contend with, but if they start showing the form that beat England and the USA earlier this year, the Matildas could, could be contenders again. There's just one big question mark hanging over this team, and that's if we'll be seeing Sam Kerr on the field at any point during this tournament. So Australia, with or without Sam Kerr, take on Denmark. Uh, Jacob Whitehead has done a report for us on the Athletics website, the will she, won't she play drama, uh, well worth a read. How about the Danes? How have they got to this point? Well, here's Abby. Denmark are quietly making their way through this tournament. Whilst their results haven't been as eye-catching as others, they are ones to watch. They were inches away from grabbing a point against England, had a couple of goals disallowed against Haiti, and a solid win over China in the group stages. With former player of the year Penilla Harder in their ranks, they'll always be a threat, 
and they have already done better than they did at last year's Euros, having made it out of the group stage this time. Concern will be then how they handle playing against the home team in a partisan stadium. Can the Danes be great, or will it be a bit of a dogged display to get them through against Australia? And was that too many puns? We'll have to wait and see. Okay, puns aside, Chloe, uh, the atmosphere must give Australia the advantage here. Would it be enough to push them through in terms of quality? Should they beat the Danes anyway? I think, obviously, I mean, they've got the home advantage and I think it will be interesting to see what the situation is with Kerr. I think it seems a little bit similar to the Kira Wall situation where they're sort of um, playing this tactical card where they kind of say, OK, well, they're fit to play, but also, you know, not letting the opposition know whether they will or will not start because I think a lot of the opposition strategies will be around, you know, key players like Wolves, like Kerr. So I think when the opposition now have to sort of, um, you know, plan around one eventuality and another eventuality, it does kind of put that additional pressure on them. So I can see what they're doing. It's, it's smart. But yeah, I think um, obviously it's going to be a massively attended game. I'm expecting the, the stadium to be full. The Australian fans have been bringing the absolute vibe. I'm expecting the fan zones to be absolutely rammed. Um, so yeah, and I think they, they're another one who've kind of grown a little bit more into the competition. Their first game whilst getting the win wasn't probably their, um, you know, their best game ever. Um, but I think, you know, that we've had key players step up in those moments. I mean, Steph Catley has been stepped in as, as the interim captain. I think she's done a fantastic job, um, in kind of like getting them, you know, rallying around the troops and kind of, you know, making sure that, you know, whilst Kerr injury, the Kerr injury is, is significant, it also doesn't impact the team too much. So, um, yeah, I'm actually expecting that this, I'm actually expecting Australia win, I think. Yeah, Australia for the quarterfinal. I could look absolutely stupid in a day's time. It's, it's hard to tell. Well, thanks very much for joining us today. England debrief tomorrow when Chloe will return, this time alongside Kiva O'Neill and Michael Cox. Make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Wins Football Podcast wherever you're listening now so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks to all our guests today, Chloe Morgan, Steph Young, Tamara Griffin and Harriet Drudge. I'm Michelle Owen and until tomorrow, it's goodbye. Athletic.